So we're still in the book of 1 Corinthians, and if you're our guest here today, we've been calling this series The Antidote of a Gospel-Centered Life, meaning when we live according to how Jesus has actually laid out life for us, the way that he's asked us to be obedient and in faith follow him, uh, it pushes out the things that would actually keep us from the true life and freedom that he wants to give to us. And so, if you have your Bibles with you today, uh, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As human beings, we generally like to be safe, secure, and in control of our lives. It tends to be a lifelong pursuit that every single one of us has. And when those things are threatened, I understand our reactions. We have fear, we get anger, we even have grief, whatever. But left to our own devices, we do some pretty strange things, don't we? When, when we feel unsafe or when we don't feel secure or when we don't feel in control. And we can do it in the church too. Here's a, a couple examples. When, when a thief, maybe you've come home and you found your house broken into. Stuff has been taken from you. What do we do? What's the gut reaction? We want to like install state-of-the-art video cameras, alarm system, security system, you know, bulletproof glass, bars on the windows, right? 24-hour security with armed guards around our property to make sure that that never happens to us ever again and that we feel safe and secure and in control of our domain, right? We kind of swing the pendulum way out the other way. Or another thing, you know, over 30 years without a single incident, a child takes a pair of safety scissors. You know the kind with those rounded tips and the blades are really blunt that you can barely kind of cut the construction paper that they're meant to cut? And a child manages to actually cut off a piece of their tongue in their elementary school. Ooh, right? The parents, they, 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 they sue the school for neglecting to provide a safe environment for their child. Never mind that the seven-year-old didn't quite clue in that a scissor inside their mouth may not have been a good thing, Right? And then they sue the scissor manufacturer because they're making such an unsafe product, right? Not, never mind, that's been used for how many years, right? And now schools around the world are confiscating scissors everywhere from their classrooms and they're developing legal legislation and curriculum that only allows teachers to actually use pre-cut crafts so that students can just assemble those in class and be safe. I'm making this up, by the way, if you're... <laughs> all right? <laughs> But you, <laughs> exactly, but you know that we're not that far away from a situation like that, right? <laughs> As humans, we have this overreaction to life situations when we feel like something's just beyond our control and suddenly something else gets in the driver's seat of our life and takes us someplace that we don't want to go. And we sometimes go to crazy lengths to try and get that control back, or at least the feeling of control anyway. And something like this was going on in Corinth when it came to the area of marriage and singleness. That's what I'm actually going to be talking about today in the church. People were finding faith in Jesus Christ through Paul and those who were building the church there at the time. The new Christ followers, they were learning how to let go of their old ways and to embrace the new life that Jesus was calling them to, to live with obedience, to live with faith. And just like today, um, it, takes, it takes time for someone to learn to follow Jesus, 
to leave behind their past, behind, and, and to realize the need to change or to shift away from the previously chosen lifestyle that they may have had. And that kind of thing tends to be messy. Um, well, because our lives are messy, aren't they? Sometimes there are those who are in authority, whether they're in the church or whether they're outside the church, and they can't seem to handle how long that process takes in people, and then they try and force a lifestyle change through an overreactive kind of policy. You know, like governments who try to legislate and dictate moral behavior, right? It doesn't ever work, by the way. You can't legislate the heart. That's something that's God's domain. In the Corinthian church, they were dealing with people coming to faith in Christ who were coming out of a culture and an environment that was extremely sexualized, where anything and everything was permissible. And as they started trying to help people discover and understand a Christ-centered theology around their sexuality, something got twisted into an overreaction. People in the church saw how far out the pendulum had swung in the culture, and then they actually swung the pendulum way too far out the other way in the church. And the church in Corinth asked Paul for help. And this is what we read in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It'll come up on the screen too. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Hmm. Yeah. Let that just sink in for a moment. Now, there are scholars who look at this verse a few different ways. But the way that makes most, most sense to me is this is a statement that was actually taken from a letter that the Corinthian church sent to Paul asking for advice. This is not Paul's opening statement on the subject. All right? The pendulum had swung from this wide open door in the culture. It's okay to express your sexuality in whatever way that you want. And then it swung back the other way and became this overcorrected closed door. No more sex for anyone. Yes, that's what you just heard your pastor say from the front. (laughs) It was a thoroughly unbiblical response. But someone must have thought, This whole sex thing has gotten us into a complicated mess. So in finding a solution, while we believe that the right response is no more sex for Christians, that's the way we've got to do this. What? What? Paul, we're having arguments about this. What do you have to say? Could you weigh in on this? This is our context. And if I was Paul, I think I would have started by saying, are you guys crazy? What? What? And it's because God created sex. It's at its core a good thing because he created it. He meant it as something for us to enjoy. And he commanded us, never mind, he commanded us to go forth and multiply. (laughs) So if you turn off the tap, there's no more multiplying and going forth, is there? Right? (laughs) It's like, Corinthians, give your heads a shake. Now, we don't have time to go over every aspect of what Paul says in chapter 7. There's a lot there. But Paul takes the time to outline and to give direction to how to bring themselves back into alignment with God's word and to properly balance things. 
Now, to remind us, Norm preached a couple of weeks ago that one of the poisons people were dealing with, that's part of our series, the antidote of a gospel-centered life, right? What were the poisons in the culture? What are they in our culture? And what's the antidote to these things? And the poison he was talking about was, God is not allowed to speak into my sexuality, period. He can be Lord of my life, but not in this area. Only I get to determine how I am going to live out my life. The antidote to that poison is, you need to understand that Jesus didn't just die for parts of you. He died for all of you. He loves you. He wants all of you. And for him to be the Lord of your life means that he has the ability to speak with authority into every corner of your being whether we like what he has to say or not. And to love and to follow Jesus means living the life the way that he teaches us to through his word and by his spirit and actually shifting our lives to conform to living like him. And that kind of posture actually leads us to fruitfulness and freedom, true freedom. It would take us just too long to read this whole chapter. I encourage you to read it. But here's the first thing that Paul addresses in verse 2 in answer to this no-sex policy. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He's saying, God's been really clear in his word that any sexual relations outside of the covenant of marriage is sin. Period. Full stop. That's his default position. You'll see it throughout all of his writing, and you'll see that as the, as the scriptures. Whether you're a man or a woman, he's saying, if you burn with passion and you have issues controlling yourself or abiding by this condition of the scriptures, then get married. So that you're expressing this God-created, God-given gift within the boundaries that God's actually set for us to be fruitful and whole. And Paul says in verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. That's a phrase we don't often use, is it? To burn with passion. If I can say it a bit more bluntly, if you want to have sex and you can't see yourself living without it, get married. That's what he's saying. Obviously, don't just get married to have sex, please. That's, marriage is far bigger than that. Paul talks about other aspects in this chapter of being married, like um, not withholding yourself sexually from your partner, from your husband, or from your wife. Not getting divorced, actually staying connected and committed to one another in a variety of circumstances, he outlines. And actually loving each other until death parts you. But marriage isn't the only thing that he talks about in this chapter. He talks about something that is, was undervalued in his day, and it's undervalued in our culture today as well. A huge part of what Paul teaches in this chapter has to do with the value and gift of being single. Verses 6 to 8 in chapter 7. He says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single, celibate, 
But each has his own gift from God, bone of one kind and wood of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. I don't know if you caught it. Each has his own gift from God. Paul is affirming marriage as a gift, and he's calling singleness a gift. And we'll look at why being single is a gift in a bit. I need to say something first. In the church, too often, marriage is seen as this ultimate expression of the ideal relationship. Somehow we communicate that if you're married, and especially if you have kids, that somehow it means you have arrived, that you're there, you've reached the pinnacle. And if you're single, well, you can actually be made to feel like maybe you haven't quite arrived yet, sometimes excluded, or maybe there's, maybe there's something wrong with you. I want to reiterate what Paul says. Both marriage and singleness are a gift. And these gifts are different. They are the gifts for different reasons. Jesus was single by choice. Paul was single by choice. And that choice was totally countercultural. You know, to be clear, not everyone is wired for a life of permanent singleness, you know, which includes celibacy, by the way. Jesus acknowledged in Matthew 19 that this is a hard thing, that not everyone is wired for that. For the Jewish people, passing on along their lives and their heritage through their marriage and their children was paramount. It was massive. And whether it was a man or a woman, you were letting your entire family down and the entire community down if you weren't getting married. So while Jesus... Well, he might have had an excuse because the Son of God and all that stuff, right? But, but Paul, he would have likely had to pay a cost for his singleness with his family. We don't read about that in Scripture, but if we know the culture, it's probably there. And it was a cost that he was willing to pay in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a cost that many people have paid in the service of Jesus to their joy and to their benefit and to the people around them. Here's the poison that every generation, every generation needs to deal with as they're called to serve Jesus with their lives, whether you're married or whether you're single. The poison is thinking that marriage is the best and that singleness somehow falls short of the best. It's simply not true. And here's the antidote. Marriage or singleness is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. That relationship is ultimate. I realize that I'm standing up here this morning as someone who hasn't been single for a long time. And Wilma and I were just about at our 20th anniversary in two weeks. Thank you, thank you, yes, yay. <laughs> we have four biological kids of our own. 
Uh, we have four other children that we've welcomed into our home at various points and times that we've welcomed them and affectionately called them and made them our own. But both Wilma and I, we realize that our marriage is not what ultimately satisfies us. It's not what ultimately makes each of us happy. We actually find our true satisfaction, our ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. He's what defines us first. He's the one who defines us first. You know that line that's used and reused from that old Tom Cruise movie, Jerry Maguire, you complete me? Right? We, we hear that echoing through, 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 the, through time back in the 90s, I think, is when that movie actually was. It's a load of hooey. It, it's really romantic. It's terribly romantic. But the truth is, is that no one person other than Jesus Christ will complete you or satisfy you. For Wilma and I, our marriage is actually one of the vehicles the Lord uses to help people around us see the gospel in action. Meaning, the relationship that we have together is actually our loudest gospel message. What do I mean by that? It's a message to the people around us, whether they realize it or we realize it or not. See, people watch our marriage. They watch our family. And they subtly evaluate, kind of underneath the surface, and connect to, well... Does their family work? And does that mean that this way of Jesus works as well? Is what I see there something that is attractive and actually speaking to me this gospel message so that I can respond to that and go, I want that as well? Being single has the same goal. How is your singleness your loudest gospel message? Being single isn't just code for young people. You might be in your 40s and you haven't found the right person yet. You might be single because your spouse has passed away. You could be a 50-something and going through a nasty divorce, whatever it is. In this season of your life, how is being single part of the gospel message that your life reflects? What do people see? Now, I remember, I, I recognized the heartache that I had when I was younger, the desire that I had as a young person to be married. I, I wanted to share my life with somebody and have a family. But as I was waiting, however many years it was before the Lord brought Wilma to me and the Lord brought me to Wilma, I actually had to lay down the desire and not allow it to actually take the place of Jesus and become an idol in my life. That, that, that goal of getting into a relationship was more important than Jesus. And when I did that, did you know freedom came? Not bliss. It's, it, it was still hard waiting. But when I entrusted my life and call to Jesus... And decided to focus on how I could serve him instead of feeding my own desires. You know what happened? Rather than feeling stuck, I felt released to purpose. I could get on with doing things. People no longer saw Aaron moping around because he was single. 
they saw someone who was pursuing Jesus. In fact, I had more people ask me to tell them about Jesus during that time of my life, more than any other time in my life before pastoral ministry. And I believe it's because being satisfied by Jesus in my singleness was my loudest gospel message. People wanted to know if it could work for them too. Here's, we need to understand some misconceptions about Paul's understanding of singleness and our modern conception of singleness. Paul was so completely um, committed to a life of celibacy that he longed for everyone to have it. You see it in his writings. But the reason he loved the single life is exactly the opposite of why many people today love singleness and will even break up marriages to get back to it. Today, singleness is cherished by many people because it actually feels like it brings us maximum freedom for self-realization, right? Because basically, you get to pull your own strings, you set your own course, and nobody cramps your style. You have that freedom to do what you want. But Paul cherished and valued his singleness because it actually put him utterly at the disposal of the Lord Jesus. No wife and no kids had to be taken into account when he went onto the mission field in some of the dangerous things that he was a part of. Right? His wife wasn't back home going, I wonder what's happening with Paul. Is he shipwrecked again? Did he get whipped? Did he get beaten? Right? <laughs> you know, no money had to be spent on clothing or you know, educating Paul Jr., Right? It, it, no time had to be taken working on that relationship with his wife. It, just, it didn't need to happen. Today, our culture promotes singleness, but certainly not celibacy, because we think that it actually frees us from any form of slavery. Right? Anything that would actually hold us back from living life the way that we want it to. But Paul actually promotes singleness and a celibate life because it frees people precisely, now hear me, it frees people precisely for slavery. Namely, slavery to Jesus Christ. I am a slave to Christ, Paul says in many of his letters. I'm his bondservant. It's not my way, it's his way. According to verses 32 and 35 in chapter 7, Paul promotes this lifestyle because he enjoyed serving Jesus with as few distractions as possible. And he wanted that for others as well. Here's what it says. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or unbetrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order 
and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. God's called many of many of you maybe to a life of singleness. For some, it may be for the rest of your time here on earth. For others, it will be a season. I don't know. But this passage reminds us that it's actually a gift to be celebrated. And I'd encourage you to be dreaming, as many of you do, about how your freedom in your signalness can actually be maximized for the cause of Christ right here and maybe even around the globe. You have some advantages that those of us who are married simply do not have in the same way. And I want to challenge us to be the kind of church that values both marriage and singleness and cheers each other on. And I want to give us some helpful ways that we can actually support each other and call out our identity as a church community in how we each live our lives and reflect the gospel to others, whether you are married or whether you are single or somewhere in between. And here's the first thing. Validate each other. We ultimately need our validation from Jesus and what he has told us and created us to be, as he reminds us of that. That's incredibly important. But people need validation. There is so much truth in that statement, whether you're married or single, or somewhere in between, like I said. As, as human beings, we long to be validated, meaning to, to be looked upon as though we are valuable, worthy of love, and as though our lives have meaning. And sadly, no thanks to our culture, many times that value gets attached to relationship status. You know, those who find themselves kind of standing alone uh, end up feeling less than others in some way, shape, or form. You and I were all made in the image of God. And it's crucial to, to notice that image and call it out in the lives of the people around us. It's important to validate each other as brothers and sisters in Christ by focusing far less on what our relationship status is with and and far more on what God has called each of us to be. So I want to encourage you, encourage your single friends by repeating and reminding them how valuable you are right here, right now, in this moment. No strings or spouses attached. Okay? Remind your married friends about how valuable they are too. Let's never let somebody's relationship status inhibit us from seeing the beauty and the wonder of who God has made each of us to be. Validate each other. The second thing, invite each other. We've all been there. That moment when you realize you are the third wheel. Awkward. When Wilma and I were married, um, I remembered what that felt like when my other friends had gotten married. And I myself, as we were married, found myself struggling with this issue, not wanting my friends to feel like that third wheel. 
uh, around us. So instead of facing what could have been an awkward situation, you kind of avoid it. And to be honest, avoiding people is a tactic straight out of the pit of hell. The enemy longs for us and longs for you to feel alone and outside of community. The way this happens within the church in our context today is when people, couples, go off two by two and they forget that those who aren't in that kind of relationship are still part of this valuable community, this body of Christ. We don't do it intentionally. But it happens. One of the best ways that you can love your single friends is by inviting them into your homes and embracing them into your worlds. Don't let personal feelings like that third wheel stuff rob them of the chance to accept an invitation and to invest your life in theirs and they invest their life in yours. Don't rob people of that. Leave that choice up to them. And open up your hearts. Open up your homes being a safe place that reflects the love of Jesus to everybody who enters, no matter what their relationship status is. And if you're single, it's easy to think that your married friends are totally wrapped up with their own selves, their relationship, and the busyness of things. And they might be. Um, But you would totally surprise them and bless your married friends by inviting them over for a meal that husband who would really like a guy's night out and has never been invited to one of those before, or a lady's night out, whatever it it is, right? Invite each other. And the last one is engage each other. Not engagement, not the ring. Engage each other. So go above and beyond your conversations about the weather and everything else by focusing on the bigger picture. Ask people, what's God doing in your life these days? Share with them about what he's doing in yours. Tell them about your struggles, your trials. Open up your heart to them. Ask how you can pray for them. Share your heart with people and allow them to take the lead in sharing their heart with you. Do them the favor of 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 remembering that they are people who are not defined by their relationship status, but rather by the one who they are ultimately in relationship with, which is Jesus. And it's important for us to remember that we're all people on a journey together. Rather than isolating or devaluing our brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be the ones who actually speak value life, encouragement into the lives and into a world that rarely does the same thing. Learn to love people in your life in the best way that you know how and give them the chance to love you. That's sometimes the harder thing. These are just some ways that we can practically live out what it means to be the body of Christ together. A place where the only relationship that really truly matters is the one that we have with Jesus. I think Paul would be pleased with that because it's the kind of community that helps instead of hinders people from finding their way to Jesus.